This is John. This is Trav. And this is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of going where no man has gone before, and then you find out that there's no reason to be there in the first place. This week we are talking about Fringeworthy, and we're talking about exploring the star platforms. You know those things down the pathway at the very end that no one goes to? Those things. That's what I'm talking about. The way the fringe paths are laid out, you have a prime world, which is then connected to an alternate platform, which is then connected to a system platform, which goes to places on the prime's solar system. And then you get connected to a star hub, and the star hub goes to eight platforms, which go to eight worlds within 40 light years of the prime. And then you shake it all about. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so... It's a long way out to the star platforms, but there's an awful lot of planets out there. 64 connections. But eight different solar systems. But in most campaigns, little, if anything, is ever done with the star platforms. So we want to address that and maybe give you some reasons to go out there and spend some time out there. So what else will we use a star platform for? Well, okay. I was gonna I was gonna point out that yeah, occasionally you will find a alien species, a race, an intelligent race, a sentient race out there. Um, in fact, if you go to the FTL twenty four twenty four forty eight universe, almost guaranteed that every one of those portals goes to an alien to an alien world that has people on that has critters on it of some sort. <laughs> uh, That's when I assumed that a that a star platform went to something habitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, you know, it could be very possible that the, the worlds out there are the same worlds you would find in FTL 2448. So all the nearby ones that are within 40 light years that have intelligent alien species on them may be out there just waiting to be discovered. <laughs> you know, if you, if you are running a harder version of science fiction, then yeah, the chances of there actually being an alien race in one of the worlds on off earth prime is like zero. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> But if it's more like FTL twenty four forty eight, hey, there's plenty of species out there to go shake hands with or something with. <laughs> Other things that we can use the star platforms are we've said mining, we've said uh, new races, hell, just colonization. Earth has become overpopulated. We need space. And here we go. I mean, even if we just set up, use the fringe worthy to set up uh, the initial uh, colony 
buildings. That's fine. Throw the rest of them in a spaceship. You already know you got coordinate. That's your system, though, Trav. Yeah. If you're trying to go that's to your know, system, that's going to that's going to Mars or the asteroid belt. Yeah. Or um, what's that one everybody really likes? I think it's Ganymede that's around Jupiter. That's a, that's a yeah. system thing. But um, star. Yeah, I mean, right now the best candidate for. Being habitable is Gleesy 667C, uh, C, uh, little C. It's basically, it's very Earth-like, very temperate, temperate, and it's only 22 light years away. I don't think we're going out there very soon, except by the platforms, (laughs) by the pathways. Well, you could also use people who are fringe-worthy and just use it as a seed planet. Just uh, spread your genetics around. If you if you use that um, the, the tuning thing where you had like a large population of a couple hundred thousand people and you pass the crystal around and you get maybe two hundred people that become fringeworthy as a result or less, but I'm just you know I'm saying there's a chance it's a relatively low just like one percent chance that a person will become attuned over the next year. So a year later you come back. Again, this depends on how you do your attuning, which is one reason why I said that I really prefer people to hold on to that thing for a year, and then there's a chance, and then they can pass on to somebody else. Um, but if you don't do that, if you just say all you have to do is handle it for a few minutes, pass it on to somebody else, come back a year later, you're going to end up with a couple within a couple of years, a couple hundred fringeworthy people, which you can then use to go on and create a colony on a world where there aren't already people. And star worlds are probably going to be places where there aren't a lot of people. Now, when I look at the fringe maps, I see an awful lot of worlds where it's another stinking swamp, but I always assume that there probably is something beyond that swamp that might not like people encroaching on it. But, yeah, you never know. Yeah. I mean, also it could be that these worlds have have been ter- have been terraformed, you know, or at least the terraforming had been started by the Termelon. And you get out there and you and you find these worlds that hey they're ready to go just need someone to set up shop and start living there. Well, you got carbon, you throw up the right enzymes through the door, and you're gonna end up with something. Well, there are some worlds that are there. They're at at the outer edge of the habitable zone or the Goldilocks zone, as Bruce likes to call it. And what you need to do with those, you need to actually increase their CO two so they start getting a little bit more greenhouse. And get a little warmer, so they may have seen some of these worlds with critters that, well, pump out CO two, you know, in large quantities just to help warm the planet up, you know. And maybe after a couple thousand years, we're not quite sure when they attached, when when these when the when this uh, when the pearls were attached to Earth, uh, when you know Earth came online. But it could be a couple thousand years, and that might be enough to actually have warmed up the plant to the point where you now can walk around. Now, there's nothing there, but you and the curve is pumping out CO2, and no one's telling them to turn off. So that may be a problem. Unless, of course, you develop critters that could live in those harsher environments, and they've been breeding like crazy. Either A, they start dying off because the world gets too warm for them, or B, they're automatically designed to... I don't want to use the word mutate because that doesn't sound like a design, but you could have some genes that all of a sudden starts turning on 
and they start, you know, expressing other types of morphological characteristics where they get lungs that breathe air instead of breathing CO2 and things change. I mean, you know, again, we're talking to Mellor. They, they can create creatures that can evolve intentionally from one form into another as the planet changes during its terraforming. Yeah. They could also have critters that breathe um, methane. The great thing about going to the Wikipedia, because it gives you the age of the, of the star system. Now, sometimes it's an estimate. Some of these worlds are listed from one from 0.2 to 10 giga years. You can throw, say, I would say put like in the median, like five five billion years. But on some places, we know how old they are based on their on their temp, on their appearance and so forth. And some of them maybe only be like billion years old. Well, that's methane. That's a methane atmosphere, and you ain't gonna breathe that. But you know, Tamelon can always make a critter that that goes, "Ooh, methane, tasty." I mean, eat, eat a lot of that stuff up, and they may be in the pro- in the process of converting the fast track to uh, doing what's called the oxygen revolution or the oxygen plague on that world. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that could be going on that they could they could have done uh, genetically. Well, those creatures already exist on Earth. We call them extremophiles. There's methane digesting bacteria that surround deep sea vents where it's putting out a bunch of it. So we can just collect some, take them somewhere else, dump them out, see if it works. I'm sure the Tamelon are doing the same thing just for just for curiosity. They seem to have an overabundance of curiosity. Right. So my point is, is that we shouldn't assume that these worlds that are out there are these pristine worlds that have been – they're just sitting out there as diamonds in the sky that nobody's touched because the primes never managed to go out there and explore them. Or if they did, our world, because we never joined the Commonwealth, that we've never gone out to our star platforms and such. And so there's nothing really out there. Uh. It doesn't sound like Tamil at all. <laughs> yeah, and there's also a very, very strong possibility that back in the early days before the Mellor War, they could have transplanted humans and other types of creatures out to places that could sur- there where they could survive on those worlds. Oh, descendants of man. No, what was the line from Battlestar Galactica, the original? Uh, the, the Sons of Man or Children or Descendants of Africa was called. What Lauren Green had said. Anyway, yeah, you go out there and you find, yeah, there's human colonies. Now, of course, depending on some of these worlds, I mean, look at some of these worlds they've found so far, uh, they tend to be on the heavy gravity side. So they're all going to be short people. But, you know, that's that's okay. These short people can pick you up and throw you like, like, a, like, like you're a football, but yeah. <laughs> when you're off their planet. Um, probably both. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think they, they probably won't be able to throw you any further than, they, than you would expect on their own world. But yeah, that physical. Because, you know, human beings are different than other creatures in that we carry a lot of juvenile physiology into our adulthood. So, for example, is, is that a tiger and us, the same, the same weight, he's so much stronger than we are. I mean, uh, things like apes, they're so much stronger than we are, even though they're the same size or even smaller than we are. Because we're essentially children who've grown into adult size. Neanderthals have been. They determined Neanderthals are probably several times stronger than we were because of differences in their in their bone structure and where the tendons and bones attached to the bones. They had better leverage on their bones than we did. And in this, we're actually getting a lot more toward that classic idea of H.G. Wells and the such that you go to an alien world, it's got a swamp in it and it's full of dinosaurs and people and such because you know the Tamelor might have gotten a giggle out of just throwing all that together and seeing what happens. 
in a lot of these worlds, you might come across and find human colonies. You know, they, you know, they remember, but they don't speak English. They speak some version of Indo of Indo European, because uh, that's that's what they were speaking way back. You know, twelve thousand, fifteen thousand years ago, when they were plucked up. Yeah, assuming, of course, that they're humans to begin with. I mean, they could have been taken from some of the other worlds where we have lizard people and, and the spider people. Or branches of humanity that died out. Other hominids. Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Australopithecus. Oh, it's the world of the hobbits. Whatever you find on these alien worlds may not be the result of evolution on those worlds. They may have been seeded from other worlds within the same node just because there was a place that was habitable enough for them to live there. Yeah. You might find a world where mastodons and, and mammoths still roam, you know, because there's no humans out. I mean, actually, they, some may have been turned into nature preserves. They like doing that, too, making nature preserves. Mm -hmm. And maybe they decided that, oh, you know, they're, they're, these critters are dying out in this world. Let's make sure that they have a source to, to re repopulate sometime in the future. Or just some some place where they can live because their current environment is being destroyed. Yeah, in fact, you know, Mastodons like someplace cold. So yeah, there's some there are some ice worlds out there that may actually be perfect with a little extra engineering here and there, perfect for Mastodons and uh, and other critters to live on. And I call it Hoth. Yes. <laughs> what about someplace the Termelon idea of a library or museum stuck out there on the end of a star platform? So you enter and you some massive repository of information, a, a, like a data backup oh, somewhere. I mean, one of each in fro kept in frozen storage or some sort of storage. Something like that. You come through and here's some sort of massive orbital thing that you walk through or something that's just lodged in deep space where it's, it's zero degrees Kelvin. And you have endless arrays of these life forms and those life forms and these compounds and these enzymes and, Whatnot, and just in storage, just just in case you needed an unaltered or unadulterated copy somewhere. Yeah, I mean that's possible. When you're people that play with genetics, you might sometimes you might want to save an original just in case you make an accident. Uh, it's not as simple as ours, where you just have a white chromosome. Uh, some animals actually it's kind of uh, difficult to turn. To, it, it's actually uh, I can't remember which pair it was, but it's a cracker where the default is male if it isn't if you if it's not fertilized. Uh, I forgot which critter that is, but yeah, if it's if it gets fertilized, it's the female. bee. No, no, bees are female. Bees are technically female, but there's a uh, some other critter, sea creature, sea creature that if you don't doesn't get fertilized, it it gives birth to males. But if it gets fertilized, it'll, it'll give birth to females. Is it seahorses? Something like that. I can't remember which which one it was. Yeah, but then again, those critters also can then at, at some point in time in, in their life go, oh, not enough, not enough females. I'm female now, and go from there. Oh, frogs do that. Yeah. There's some amphibians that do that, like salamanders, I think. They change as necessary. But pretty much, you want probably want to have breeding pairs, and you want to have a lot of breeding pairs. So it's not going to be like one mastodon. It's going to be a hundred mastodons. <laughs> well, if you're going to do a backup, you know, I thought about that saying, well, why don't they just go and just map out the genetic code and store it on a server? But, you know... Storing something on a server, that's the point of failure. It's a lot easier to go and create a herd of, of whatever it is, okay, and let it live somewhere. And then when it comes time to actually extract the original code, you just go in and just take samples of all the animals and work down till you find the commonalities and say, okay, that's a mutation, that's a mutation. Here's the original. Okay, it's right there. 
Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, you can if you grab like a um, uh, if you do a nice sample over a, over a region mastodons, then you'll have nice gen- enough genetic variability not to worry about it. Uh, when when it comes time, uh, you don't just want to grab one herd. You want to grab like one one or two from lots of herds, and then you have enough genetic variability to make sure you have something viable later on. There's plenty of stories out there where the uh, the, the life on the Earth is acts as a form of a computer or uh, storage of some kind or another. It's uh, and for people who are into into bio research like the Tamalans are, it makes a lot of sense that they would go that route. So it sounds to me like you know uh, the stars are alive with life if it's possible. And so, what kind of ventures would we have out there? So, yeah, you're you're fringe worthy with your one fringe knot going out to Glisa six six seven C. You know, what kind of ventures could you have on this world that's partly tightly locked to its to its uh, to its primary, and there's two other stars in the sky? You know, what kind of ventures would you have in that world? Well, you could have a world that has dragons on it. Yeah. If it's a low gravity world. And it has high pressure. I created a world one time where something had come in and hit the planet so hard that it had punched a gigantic mountain out the other side. So this thing basically had a hollow spot on one side and a projection on the other. And where it was hollow, the atmosphere got heavier and heavier and heavier because it was further and further down. You know, it wasn't just sea level anymore. It was way below sea level, like hundreds of miles below sea level. And so you had dragons that could live down in that area because the the gravity was the same, but the pressure was higher. But then you, on the other side, you had creatures that could live in these rarefied atmospheres of the gigantic mountain were completely different. So I kind of saw that as being a very medieval fantasy type world because you had these extremes on, on its own planet. Do we remember saying exactly when Earth, Earth Prime was hooked up to the fringe paths? No. We've never officially said it. If Richard knows, he's never shared it with me. Yeah. If it's far enough back in time, there's a possibility that, yeah, you go out there besides the herd of bastardons, there's a herd of of Homo sapiens, not Homo sapiens sapiens, but Homo sapiens from before the great culling. That is before the the the, the genetic bottleneck that happened to us about a hundred thousand years ago, and all that variability we lost is still out there someplace. And you know what? A hundred thousand years—that's not, not that—that's that's pretty close. That's close enough that you can still breed with them. You know, so for all we know, there's human civilization out there that would that would have been on Earth if we hadn't been uh, genetically choked down to a few. Th- 10,000 individuals like that. We don't know what it was that killed off like 99% of humanity, 99% of humanity. We don't know if that was an asteroid strike or multiple volcanoes. A volcano, super volcano eruption. But something called us down to where we only have a few thousand individuals. Uh, and those individuals then, you know, because we have actually the same, we have about the same variability as cheetahs. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was broadcast television. They just lost the will to live after seeing those shows. I mean, someone kept just playing Friends over and over and over again. Yeah, Fox News. (laughs) (laughs) Reality Uh, TV. But there's also a lot. There's a lot of possibilities that that you had that boom and bust going on out there too. You know, 
There could have been real, you know, like a real colony out there that they just decided that they wanted to live in a, in a different world environment. I mean, there's people right now, today, I'm one of them, who would love to go out and live on an alien world. Okay, not because I don't like my own world, but because I've always wanted to live on an alien world. It's part of the mindset of what I thought the future would be. So I can imagine back when the Commonwealth was in, in operation, when they, they basically revealed themselves to a world, they said, hey, we're the Commonwealth. And they had people there said, really? Well, can we like go to another world? And they said, sure, there's like, you know, eight or nine worlds out there on your star platform that nobody's living on right now. Would you like to go there? And they're like, yeah, cool. Sure. Sign me up. Maybe back in the days when the big system was up and up and running, anything within forty light years was game at that point. So you know that's something for the you know if you can figure out a, a workable you know space drive, you may actually find out that those eight worlds are just the ones that they they were very interested in. But there's other worlds out there they went and played with too within forty light years because of that. Well, there's only going to be certain universes where they have space travel that's in that sense because I, that, that was the main reason why, as you said, the Tamellern created the French Pass was they were trying to create a star drive. Instead, they found the infinite number of universes, uh, the French Pass. And so they said, well, let's do that instead. Now, it may be that in their universe, it isn't possible for them to have faster than light travel. And it may be true in a lot of universes, it's not possible to have fast and light travel. Now, I'm not saying there aren't ones where there is. There's clearly ones where there is. We know in Bureau 13 world, you know, you've got incursion, which has fast and light travel. It's built into it. We have one example for sure in the extant books where we know that there is a node out there pretty close to us on the fringe paths where there is faster and light civilization. There's one behind the, a big ice wall where they've got robotic alien ships that come and go all the time. It, that, that's all the description there is for it. But supposedly somewhere at the other end of all this, there might be another star civilization where you could collect some of these spaceships and stuff like that and figure out how they work. But they may only work in that node. That there is like faster light travel in, our, in, in the Earth Prime universe, but it's one of the more hard science fiction versions where you either have to use the Alicumbri drive, warp drive, or you have to create uh, wormholes. Gee, what's a portal again? Anyway, you create wormhole, wormholes to go someplace else, but it really takes a lot of stuff to do that, you know, a lot of energy to do that, make those wormholes. And so it's, you know, not entirely practical, but it's, it's possible. Jay Haley, uh, our, our host on hi hiatus, hi, Jay, asked me if I could come up with uh, worlds that were that are within uh, 20 light, uh, 40 light years of of Earth Prime uh, in the FTL in the FTL twenty four forty eight universe and and actually after referring to the to the uh, actual distance data unfortunately it turns out our star charts in the in the game are a little bit out of date so I had to actually redo them all <laughs> uh, at least redo the numbers for them so within forty light years we're looking at Alpha Centauri A with actually has a colony Centauri you have Procyon A which has Frenor one. The trail live on are like 15 light years away. Uh, there's two more colony worlds, Peridot and Brasilia. Uh, Hansen's world, the home of the Arkal, Skay, and Tugan, within 24 light years. The Blocks live within 26 light years. And Bryox, which is another human colony, is within 28 light years. So, yeah, you can. there's at least three alien species. Well, yeah, three alien species right there to interact with from the FTL universe. Uh, gee, I can imagine the uh, trail. They're worse than Kegak. 
the Imperial 13 universe, you're guaranteed, you're guaranteed that every one of those worlds goes someplace with aliens. You know, aliens who want to consider, oh, you look interesting, human. Let's take you apart and see how you work. Yes, but if you have a high enough technology, they can do that and put you back together again. Yeah. To serve man is a cookbook. Sooner or later, I'm pretty sure you're going to go through a portal on a star platform and you're going to find yourself on a world that has, if not a starboard, at least they got people that are connected in some way to a starfaring civilization. So what's going to be our standard marching orders here, Paul? What do you think is the first thing we're going to want? Is that star drive or is there something else we're going to be more interested in? I would say we'd want the star drive so we could be on an equal diplomatic footing. We're on a completely different node we're talking about here. I'm not assuming that you're going to go through Earth's star platform and find it. That'd be great if we did, but it's much more likely, I think, that we're going to find such a civilization a few nodes away. Talking about coming through the Earth Prime star platform onto a world there and locating, or are you talking about going several nodes down the fringe path left to right to somebody else's Star Wars type galaxy? I'm assuming you're incorrect, Paul. I think it was you suggested that each node would explore their own star platform and nobody else would do that. I personally think that whoever wants to go there and explore them would go and do it. There's not such a huge push to do that. There's such a lure to the alternates that I figure that every, it's going to be catch-as-catch-can. I mean, if you're right, if there is a, a star-faring civilization on Earth Prime star platform somewhere, then yes, oh, we definitely would want to have, for our own defense, if nothing else, to have access to that star drive and build our own space fleet to patrol our own borders. I was actually thinking for just on diplomatic reasons, you'd want to be able to go out and travel and see them on their turf, then you know you could what they're saying is true. If somebody says, oh, we're friendly, we're nice, we just want to trade with you. And then you go through and you get to their side and it's millions upon millions of warships. They might not be saying everything that they should be saying. Well, that's the case where you find out if you, if you can hotwire one and bring it back home. On the other hand, if you go through a portal to a world in which they have a uplink or they have a star port there, they don't know where you came from because you came through a portal. So if there's some way of tracking starships to from their place of origin, are you flying over and finding the alien fleet filled with electric death? You might not necessarily want to let those breadcrumbs all the way from your ship back to your home planet. Using this fringe portals is a good way of, of breaking that. So you don't hotwire one and take it back home. You can try to trailer it home through the portal, if possible, which is probably unlikely. Ships probably are going to be pretty big. Oh, it's the size of the star of the star drive. It's oh, it's great. It's greater than 20 feet across. Why? Just because? I don't know. If you're going down the fringe pass to somebody else's star platform and you harvest a FTL drive, when you bring it all those nodes back to your universe, it's going to work. No, I I agree. I, that's why I, I'm pretty much oriented toward the idea. If you go through a, a star portal, you find yourself on the world. That world either has a transmitter that goes to somebody who can come pick you up or it has its own star port. And that's your point of contact with that star civilization. And that's the, the conduit through which you go and explore that star-faring civilization. Again, that's why I think that any node only explores its own star platform. Because it's the physics of your universe. Anything you bring back may only be useful in your universe. Victorian star platform. Everyone wants to go there because this is going to be the funnest place to go to. Because you you know guarantee that every one of those worlds is going to be like out of a Pulp Fiction book. 
Embrace the narrative, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> There's only like, what, 200 people out of a planet of 6 billion that can go check it out? It's one person well, in 100,000. Maybe 50 or 100 years down the timeline. You hop around, you find all these various alien critters and so forth. They're traveling around and you steal a spaceship. And, and I understand what you're saying. And it's, that's all really great for the Victorians because it's their universe and their science and their laws and physics. But it doesn't work if you're from... Golden Horde. Agreed. Or Earth Prime. It doesn't work there either. That's why I say that it's it's a great resource for the fringe empire that owns that node. But somebody, even from the next node over, it, it's, it's a long ways to haul something. But it doesn't have to be just that. I mean, you're assuming that the only thing worthwhile to find in a, a star that has a star-faring civilization is a star drive. I'm sure there's lots of other technology that may not be based upon loopholes in the physics of their universe that might work perfectly well in another world. We are always running into other worlds that are less technologically advanced than we are, but it might be nice to run into a world where they are more technologically advanced and we get a jump start on some things that could really help out Earth Prime. To me, that's one of the main reasons to go out to the star worlds is because you're looking for that star civilization because it has the higher tech and we're always kind of looking for technological solutions for the problems on Earth. You'll probably start, besides checking everything else, when you go to a new node, for, some of the first thing you, you do is check to see how compatible it is back to Earth Prime. You know, if it's, if it's within like 99% compatible, hey, there's a lot of things you can bring back home that will still work. What would you do to do that, John? Uh, that's good. I don't know what that methodology would be. Trouble is, that requires a high-end physics lab to, to determine, you know, we get down to the granular stuff. The universal constants for our universe, the universal constants for our universe are the same. Hey, everything's compatible. If they're a little bit off, maybe they're compatible, maybe not. Uh, or you go places like Victorian Earth where, yeah, the universal constants are something completely different. Don't worry about everything here works. Just... Close your eyes and enjoy enjoy the ride. I'm just picturing this huddle of Nobel laureates around a table of stuff. <laughs> Everybody's trying to figure out what's the on switch. Yeah, you get to tech. It's like you know tossing a tape player to a a chimpanzee. He can pick it up. He can turn it over. He can push the buttons, but and he might turn it on. But he doesn't know where to put the batteries. Well, you're assuming the batteries aren't already in it, so yeah. You may get something, and it's fantastic, but you don't even have the math to understand it. Well, but that's assuming that you're finding this as a relic. If you run to a civilization that uses these things all the time, then they might very well be able to say, well, our universal constants are you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you compare it to your own and say, oh, okay, this isn't going to work in our world. But hey, some other things you know, might work because they're not so linked to those kinds of things. And then we come to the alien artifact trope in science fiction. How many times does that just eat somebody? Oh, yeah. Well, that's always part of it. Sure. If you, if you find xenomorphs, uh, which is the official name of the aliens from the movie Alien, back away. Get out of there. Leave. Go. Because they'll probably work just fine on Earth Prime. <laughs> uh, they're a silicone-based life form? Yes. You're rejiggering it again. They're, they're a biological life form that makes use of a lot of silicone. Uh, I thought it was a silicone-based one since it has as many valence shells as, as carbon does. The jury's still out, but the consensus is you're not going to find silicone life form, at least not at room temperature. 
I have a very strong feeling that they're going to find out the universe and the multiverse is far more weird and unusual than we could possibly imagine. What you'll find is carbon-based life using silicon, but probably not strictly silicon life by itself. I don't know. <laughs> as, as Paul said, there's a lot of weird critters that are living down in vents and such, so, you know. I think we're going to ask the question, and the universe is simply going to laugh back at us. Yeah. And again, this is a game, so therefore, please put whatever jazzes your heart. If you want to have talking birds, and you want to have talking rock, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Have fun. Roll some dice. Play with the creature building tables. It's in the back, in the middle of the book. Yeah. A couple of random rolls. You can come up with something tremendously weird. At some point, you, you can make a justification for it. And remember, they all want to mate with our women. Uh, there's a great artist on, on DeviantArt I follow. It's, it's, his name is Abiogenesis. And he comes up with some really lovely alien aliens. They, I mean, they are not guys in rubber suits. They are aliens. But they're aliens you look at and go, yeah, that can work. You know, And I could probably talk to them. I might not understand what they're saying, but I could probably talk to them. They're not human. They're not humanoid. They're alien. You may actually run to an alien race that you look at and go, okay, which end do I talk to? And you're assuming that when you come through the portal and you meet an alien race, that it's going to either want to talk to you because you're, you're intelligent, or it won't talk to you because you're not evolved enough, or that it recognizes you as sentient life and something to be respected, or it just decides it's your food. To have the kind of Star Trek universe with all the aliens, uh, there would be an alien race in every other world. Just to get the, the, the number of aliens within a thousand light years, uh, within a thousand years of technology, as you see in Star Trek. To get that density, you have to have aliens in every other world. And most of them would be millions, if not billions of years old. Sure. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And they even talked about the, the progenitors and such. So, sure. And, of course, with the Tamalorn doing that very thing, you might find civilizations built upon the ruins of civilizations. Because the, the Tamalorn only explored out like 40 light years. There could be star civilizations that lived and died millions of years ago just beyond that range that, that might have sent probes in from the outside. And you might find out that there's all kinds of things. One of the things that Richard told me a long, long time ago was out on the star platform. And he just said to me something very cryptic, which is very Richard. And he said was, well, the Tamara went out there and they found something and they scared them. They never went back to them. So the star platforms were all out there, but, but they never used them for anything. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's never elucidated on it since. You go inside some of the asteroids, they are living circuits. They're living computers. And they've been there for 3 billion years. They don't like us because we're making too much radio noise. So they're trying to get rid of us. There's your silicon-based life again. Yeah. Based on purely mathematical models, if you assume that it is possible to create a computer powerful enough to create a virtual reality that's indistinguishable from our own, it's already happened and you're in it. There's like one guy said, well, yeah, we live in a simulation because if you go down far enough, you'll see pixels. I'm going, you see plank lengths, plank length objects. 
you know, because according to physics, that's the smallest thing you can have. It's something a Planck length, which is really, 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 really tiny. They've got some really good animations on this on YouTube about relative sizes. They they go from the Planck length all the way up to the known universe. They play the music from the black hole in the background. There's a lot of things you'll find out there. I mean, within 40 light years, I mean, most science fiction stories take place within the 40 light years of Earth. Assuming that there are these alien worlds out there and there are people on them or creatures that we would call people. And assuming that, that the atmosphere is not something that takes too much for us to deal with, we might have to wear some kind of a mask, but probably not even that. What are the things we're going to have to watch out for uh, as far as exploring these worlds? You know, the, the things that are the, the, the gotchas, the GM can throw in, but at the same time, he, do, he wants to be gentle with because we don't want to just kill everybody off and, and make them not want to go out to the star platforms. Paul? I would say the most dangerous thing would be that only one in four proteins is compatible with our, our cellular makeup. So you come out on an alien world, you may not be able to consume the water or the food. You'd have to bring everything with you. It'd be allergic to everything? You just don't manufacture the enzymes to break it down. So you eat it, but it goes right through you and you get nothing out of it. Or it binds up your other cellular processes and it poisons you slowly. It's not a... TPK, but it's like, oh, this limits our time on this planet because we can't eat the food. Our bodies go and use acid to denature proteins so that we can, you know, eat them. And that's and there's a number of, of various animals and plants out there that are poisonous to us, but we have techniques for processing them so that they become palatable uh, and, and healthy for us. I'm not talking about the initial you walk through and you, you eat something and it kills you. I'm saying is that on the long run, you don't think we'd be able to figure out some way of, uh, of being able to process the food on a planet so we could eat it? No, I'm saying that it would be incompatible with our cellular processes. We don't manufacture the enzymes to break it down in, into molecules we can consume. Do we have any examples of this? Cellulose. You and I can't consume. We can eat corn, but we don't digest it. You and I, we eat corn, but we can only consume the sugars and the starches from the center of it. We can't consume the outside cellulose shell. We don't have the enzymes to break it down. Okay. And so corn goes completely through us, and we don't get we don't get the sugars that make up that cellulose shell. Right. But cows do because they have bacteria that'll do that. Right. They have bacteria or like termites that have bacteria in their gut that break down cellulose. Bacteria don't actually eat wood. It's the bacteria in their gut that eat the wood for the termites and convert the wood cellulose into saccharides. And they also eat the bacteria. Right. Our cellular makeup is only compatible with one in four types of proteins out there. So it's, it's not a TPK, but it, you could steer your party back off of a planet if you needed to run them out or in another emergency. But this also might be a really great thing because you could go out there and you could find some plant that's, that tastes really – you know, it's like you eat it. But you only get like one quarter of the food. You got diet food. It looks like regular food. Remember Olestra? It wasn't as bad as people made it. I think those people had something wrong with them to begin with. Oh, it's like those people eat eat the sugar-free gummy bears. You know, eat too many sugar-free gummy bears. Yeah. Sick. John, don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> but that's an example of what can happen when you eat something you can't digest. That's where you set people up with this, oh my god, this world's amazing. The food's great. Perfect. 
it's the right temperature and the water's warm and it's in the sun's out all the time. It's so lovely. And look at this fields of melons, all the melons you could ever want and different varieties. This melon tastes like oranges and this melon tastes like sardines. It's amazing, but you can't eat any of it. And the problem is, is that they're all 100% fiber to your, to your gut. You know, that's pretty much you're eating very tasty fiber. Right. Well, if that really was the case, that we'd have to provide our own custom enzymes to break the food down. And then, you know, we could even eat them like, you know, pop a pill as we were eating something to provide those enzymes you're talking about. Uh, masa goes through a process where they run it through lye. And they basically help, it helps break down some of, those sh- some of those sugars we can't digest. So you, you, so you can digest it. Hominy. Yeah, hominy is another one. And, and tofu. Your grits. And tofu goes through a similar process. These melons taste great, but the only way you can eat them is to, well, let them ferment with some, with some earth yeast. And yeah, you end up drinking them, but yeah, you got to let them ferment. Exactly. You, you end up turning them into alcohol and you drink the alcohol. I could see that happening. Sure. I am sure that the top of the list for any fringe exploring outfit is going to be a still. I agree. It's very useful. It's useful for so many things. We're making martinis on the at the at the fifth node. I don't care what anybody says. Or you're making fuel for the vehicle, one or the other, you know. <laughs> or you're making antiseptics. Sure. I mean Or you're making stuff for your chemistry chefs sets so you can continue making your, your litmus tests. Or you're making some form of ethanol for your fuel cells. Sure. Yeah, it's all all good. It's all good. Yeah. And somewhere along the lines, some rocket juice gets made, and that's good too. And you got to make trade goods. That's right. Most of your civilizations are time retarded, and and you're running into somebody much more primitive than you are. Yeah. Or it's just the only way to get drinkable water. And nothing breaks the ice like a couple shots of whiskey, or if you're Russian, a couple shots of vodka. Okay, so we're back out there on the star platform. Okay. What are we going to find? What What's the cool stuff we're going to find we want to bring home? Assuming there's civilizations to bring something back. I think top of the list after, after FTL is going to be medicine. How do you cure cancer? How do you kill viruses? Well, the, their answer may be, well, we sort of cured it by engineering humans so they don't actually develop cancer anymore. Well, cancer is typically a, a copy error. Yeah. We only live 30 years, and then, and then we commit suicide. They actually have found several. They are actually are a virus uh, vi- caused by a virus. So not everything is copy error. Sometimes it's actually caused by a virus. Virus is creating the copy error. Since an, a virus reproduces by injecting a, a healthy cell with its own RNA, enforcing the cell's mechanisms to make copies of viruses. So some of that RNA mixes up with the cell's DNA, or the cell's mRNA, and you get replication errors. You can tell someone's been going to school for this stuff, can't you? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, John, I've got to be in zoology. I know all about this. Yeah, I I, I, I cut some frogs in high school, so yeah. But yeah, medicine, you know, a better medical scanner. what What makes a better diagnosis? How do I synthesize... Uh, in a laboratory, better medications, safer medications, or custom-tailored medications. This is your painkiller. Nobody else can use this. This is tapered for the dopamine cells in your brain so that you're, it's not addictive and you don't, it don't hurt. 
and you could tailor it by level or whatever. I think that would top the list of what you want to bring back after you, uh, you know, a FTL drive. Auto dock that actually will function on, on Earth Prime. An auto dock would be one, one thing to bring back. Yeah, you could bring it back, but can you build one? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of stuff that you could bring back to Earth and they could build it. If you have a starship culture, then one of the things that they have is they have mature life support. It's one that we don't have yet. We've never been able to create a self-sufficient, self-contained life environment. We tried with the biodome, but they had to add more oxygen in at the end. They weren't producing enough. It just wasn't stable. So if you ran into a, an actual star culture, I'm sure they would have figured that out and they could ha- let us know the things that we were doing wrong or whatever missing piece that we needed to get that working. And that would allow us then to, as you said, explore our own solar system better. It would allow us to build underwater arcologies, possibly even underground arcologies. 3D printing technology, machines that make machines. There's your problem about solving making that auto dock because you have the machine that makes the auto dock and it can make itself. Manufacturing technology. I always assume you could make something that is your tech level or lower, but you can only study something that's your tech that's above your tech level. Well, Trav would tell you it's like if it's above two tech levels above, that's when you can't understand it anymore. I'm just saying that I could ship a laptop computer back to scientists in 1901. <laughs> they could look at it. They could they could play with it. They could start it, but they couldn't replicate the silicone wafers. They couldn't replicate the transistors on the circuit board. Not initially, no. They could study it, but they couldn't make it. Well, they could study it, and then from that, they could figure out how to make it, and then they could build the tools to build the tools to actually make it. It might take them 20, 30, 40 years to do it. They could still, by their bootstraps, get themselves to the point where they could do it. Now, you get a little bit further along the line where you've got stuff that's dimensionally shifted and stuff, then you don't even have the tools to examine properly. So, yeah. Yeah. Also, unless they have compatible... uh Power, power supply, they get to play with it for six hours. And then it's a, it's a dead block at that, at that point. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying is you, you sometimes you get something and you don't have the, the science and the math to explain what it is you're looking at, which is, I thought was funny. I envisioned a, a, a round table of Nobel laureates with an alien artifact trying to find the on switch. Well, if this is, in fact, a world in which the Tamalarum just basically just, you know, grabbed a bunch of stuff and threw it out here to let it ferment and such, you might actually find, you know, this would be something that would have happened back at the beginning of the Commonwealth, or at least the formation of the French Baths. So you might actually run into some early Tamalarum tech that might be a lot more understandable than the really, you know, godlike stuff, magical stuff they're using now. And you also can run into technology that... Well, it, it, it's like 10 years from now, technology, which is probably more useful for, for us than stuff that's thousands of years in, in the future. Right. 10 years in the future, we'll have a better chance of understanding, and they actually can make major changes for us. Right. Now, that's just engineering. It'll probably take another, it might take another 10 years once we get it to figure out how it worked, but we at least might be able to copy it and start making it ourselves. Yeah. If we knew what all the junk DNA, supposedly junk DNA in our bodies were in our genome, we might be able to do some amazing stuff. Just having someone say, oh, yeah, well, it's, this is this. And they basically you know, flop down a, a big diagram and say, this is what all these things are. And if you stimulate this, then you'll get this. And if you, and you could take this and merge it with that. Or if you add a little 
you know, uh, fly DNA, then you, you get Y. So you've got all the, the experimentation that's done by a, another race that may have neither the compunctions nor the goals that your particular race has in its research. What we more valuable to get is actually not the, um, it's not the technology, is get a hold of their, I would say, elementary school science, tech, science textbooks. Because that will explain a lot of the, their technology and how they do stuff in those elementary school books that we will find out. Oh, so this is why this happens and so forth. Especially if they're from our, if they're from a compatible or from our node, uh, so to speak. You can learn a lot more when you're not tied to a gravity well like we are around the sun. You know, you can find out some new things, technology that uh, you could normally you could normally figure out, or you, at least it gives you in a, a form that you can then base research on and start building our own stuff from it. I mean, there might be a lot of things having to do with just living in space. I mean, we worry about things like our bodies becoming weaker because we're in space and don't have the normal rigors of gravity while pulling on our muscles and keeping us strong. Well, maybe all it takes is a shot of a certain kind of equivalent of a steroid and you're fine. Your body automatically says, oh, well, I got to build some more muscle. Okay, fine. Well, instead of building more muscle, I'm just going to strengthen the one I already have. So you may need a pill is uh, taken once a day in order to keep you healthy in space. That'd be a great thing to bring back. Running into a culture that's already in space answers so many questions, material questions, how to keep atmosphere you know, inside of a spaceship better, what, what are the best kinds of shielding for solar radiation and cosmic rays? Well, how do you deal with possibly some psychological things? I mean, there's a lot of novels that have been written about people going space crazy because they get out into the middle of space and there's nothing around for light years and they're, you know, all alone except for whoever else is on the ship. And... If they don't kill that person, then they just go crazy because they just lack something, something essential in that's part of a normal society that you would bump into people constantly and they would take care of it. But when you're in space and you only have one or two people, you find that thing missing and now you're too far away to, to do anything about it except suffer through it and hopefully survive. When the Russians tried a long-term experiment, they simulated going to Mars and the volunteers were in there for, what, a year? And the only way they could talk to anyone was through a simulated time delay. So the only people they actually could talk to normally were the other people in the uh, chambers you were living in. Yeah, things got a little antsy for a while. In fact, I think they had to terminate the experiment before someone killed somebody. The biggest thing that came out of that experiment was you need places for people to go to be by themselves, away from the others. They need private space. Otherwise, they, they, they start crawling the walls. <laughs> I think there was sort of that you have a, a certain communal low limit where you have enough people that you can keep conversation interesting. We're social creatures, but we don't want to socialize with the same person every single day. We have a little variety, so we, when we run into something, somebody else, there's a little bit new news. Hey, speak for yourself, Paul. Some of us are married. But you go out to a job and see other people every day. Yeah, but I still socialize with the same people every day. There's a reason why submarine tours are six months long. That's about as long as you can go before you want to kill the other guy. They're not co-ed, so there's other reasons, too. They are now. I'm having visions of the pink submarine. (laughs) The old joke was, what happens when a submarine goes to sea with 100 sailors? Six months later, you come back with 49 couples and two priests. 
<laughs> but now they're mixed gender, and now they're mixed gender and mixed mixed orientation. So, you know, it's six months of party madness. Yeah, and they run out of fresh food in the first three weeks. It's torture for all the people that are cut off from the internet for six months. What happens to the World of Warcraft character? Well, you'd have your own server, of course. Yeah. Unless you're an officer or an NC- or high-ranking NCO, you are hot-bunking in a bunk that someone just got out of five minutes ago. It's still warm when you hop in. Well, that's the way it is over in Dakara, over in, in India. They, they have a little business, and one guy's working the business, the other guy's sleeping, and then they trade off every 12 hours or every six hours, depending upon you know how they want to do it. Things that we take for granted out here that don't really bother us, you're wiping down every surface in a submarine with, with antibacterials and bleach because a staph infection on a submarine just keeps going around and around and around. I'm sure. So it's the same thing for a starship. All these things are important, especially if you want to start exploring other worlds and living in habitats where... If you're on an alien world where it's not very hospitable, you're going to be in a habitat anyways. There might be a little bit more space inside, but you're still going to have the same issues. So running into a culture that has mature space travel, they're going to be able to advise you and tell you things that are good ideas for mediating the problems and maybe some things that make it a lot more fun. They may tell you, hey, you know, if you're in a tiny little cabin, what you want to do is you want to go into virtual space where you've got the great outdoors all around you. It's better than life. You know, versus Star Trek and Star Wars, where people are coming and going from ships, I always envision that in real scenario, you're basically going to walk into an airlock, remove everything you're wearing, and leave it behind and basically board the ship in your birthday suit and go through an entire decontamination process where you're scrubbed and bathed in UV light and everything else. And when you get on the ship, you, you wear your shipboard clothes and whatnot just to keep all the viruses and bacteria and stuff off. If you're in a suit, you're not going to have to worry about that. If you're wearing a space suit, then basically you just leave the suit in the suit locker and it gets a good UV coat, you know, it gets washed before you take it off. Or if it's like it's Soviet design, you plug into the back and then you pop the back and come out and never touch the outside of the suit. I'm talking about you as a commuter. I'm getting on at this space station, jumping 40 light years and getting off at a new space station. You know, it's been taken care of. It's called herd immunity. After the Blocks Plague and the Krell Plague and the Trail Plague and all that stuff got, got, has done going around with everybody, everyone's got immunities that you don't worry about that after a while. Well, that's not the case of where you're going to go through as a person from Earth and you're going to bump into a whole new culture. That's where the fringe pass is going to be really nice to have so you can bop through there and get cleaned out before those things kill you. Go to a world, find a spaceport, hang around the spaceport, check your temperature. After about three weeks of running into everybody around you, if you still haven't come down with something lethal, then you're probably going to be safe enough to travel the spaceways. About diseases in the filter. I'm curious, when it wipes something bad out of your system, when you step through the French filter, when it removes a dangerous virus from your body, does it still leave you with the antigens? I would say yeah. That's why you start building immunities and start getting your your system starts getting stronger. Now, let's say I'm an Earth Primer, and I'm fringe worthy, and I come step through the portal onto Rogue Four Seventeen, and I'm blithely walking around, and I meet the natives, shake hands with somebody who's a carrier but doesn't have symptoms of Rogue Four Seventeen, and I catch it. 
Okay, we'll go with it. Yeah, so you catch it. Yeah, if you go through, yeah, whatever antibodies you you developed will probably still be there. I'm ill. I know I'm dying. I come back through. The filter pulls the all the virus out of me, or, or kills it dead, or makes it inert. So I have the antigen. So somebody could use my blood to synthesize a vaccine. It's possible. You'd still be sick as a dog. I'm assuming that anytime you cross that fringe filter that as it kills every bacteria and virus in your body, it probably gives you a, like a wicked case of the flu anyway. No, it says it gives you a bio boost, so you actually end up feeling better. It's sort of like getting a, an electronic B1 shot. I think that's probably one of the greatest gifts the fringe where they could carry to any world. Give them the cures for all their diseases? Right. You are a walking source of antigens that could save them from some god-awful plague. You step through some world that's that's in the grip of the 1918 Spanish flu where 60 million people are on the chopping block and you can synthesize a vaccine or your whole party can synthesize vaccines in each blood type. Sounds like a big operation. Especially if you're talking the, the Spanish flu plague where they wouldn't be able to do that. You have to take it back to Earth Prime to, to, to actually to synthesize it. Yeah, but I mean, if it's something where it's so virulent that it's going to kill off everybody, at least you could keep a remnant. It might be worthwhile doing. You know, you're wandering around the fringe paths, and not every time, every world you're going to go to is your gold valuable. Or you're going to step through and you're PL5 and you step to a world that's PL7. None of your technology you're carrying has any value to them. Uh -huh. Your currency doesn't have any value. And they may think your art is hideous, but you're a walking pharmacology. You have the antigens for every strain of influenza running around your body. Well, that's a, a very interesting idea, Paul. I, I don't think anyone's ever suggested it before, so bravo to you. Yeah. Hmm. So you're going around giving French kissing people Arcturian flu so you can generate their, um, okay. So with that, I think we need to pull this to a close. We hope that you now can see some good reasons to go out to the star platforms and find something other than barren worlds out there for you to get a lethal dose of radiation or get float away in outer space, away from the, the portal and die in the vacuum and, and cold and darkness of space, that there's actually going to be interesting worlds out there full of alien artifacts and biological experiments or even just transplanted ecologies that have been allowed to run rampant on worlds, especially the thousand years since the Tameller and Meller War. Let your mind run rampant, GMs. You have actually more possibilities here than you have on the alternate Earths because you're not limited to a believable Earth ecology. If you do uh, this, feel free to post your adventures and uh, your ideas on our Facebook page, fans of the TriTac podcast, fans of Fringeworthy, and any of the other TriTac boards, TriTacGamers.com, and even the old Yahoo groups where we still have people logging on to the Fringeworthy group there. We look forward to seeing your ideas. And while you're listening to us on iTunes, please give us a review so that other people will learn about us because that pops us into on the top of their list to show on the screens and more people can enjoy this podcast. Whatever you can do to help us get the word out and, and let us know what you like so that we can give you more of it, we'd be glad to hear it. And we're going to have more for you, but it's not going to be until next week. So until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend.
And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.